Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcc.com. Good morning. We're in a sermon series going through the book of Genesis. Today we come to a passage that raises a lot of difficult questions about the nature of God and how God interacts with his creation. There are some aspects of this story that even have led people away from faith altogether. But as we get into this today, um, I hope that it will increase our faith, that we will see the goodness of God and his faithfulness. Um, I, I do have a lot to say, and I was like, man, I'm just no introduction. I'm just going to go into it. But that feels weird, doesn't it? My name is Jason. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, thank you to Ryan and the team. It's very encouraged to, to worship uh, through song with you guys today. Uh, but this is a long passage, and um, I don't speak as fast as Cameron, so <laughs> if you guys remember that, it's crazy fast. So as we get into the story today, I want us to think about movies um, that, 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 that create a sense of suspense or tension because they're developed around someone pretending to be someone they're not, that there's just a lie right out in the open. So I want just to set the mood. Can you think of movies that that has like a premise? And, and I'll get us started thinking with this one, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> this wonderful work of cinema where Robin Williams dresses up like an old Scottish lady so that he can be hired as a nanny for his own children. <laughs> That's mine. Any others? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, yes the polyjuice potion. And as the polyjuice potion is wearing off, it's like any moment they could be found out and discovered, right? And, and like maybe even as you're viewing these things, you're like holding your breath. And then whenever it's over, you're just like, oh. I don't know if you've, I've experienced that where it's like you finally breathe and you're like, man, I was holding my breath for a, for a while. There's a novel also turned into a movie called The Count of Monte Cristo. And that's a big part of it is that he's sort of in disguise. You guys seen that? Should all go watch it as Jim Caviezel, so Christians are supposed to watch it. <laughs> so these stories are suspenseful because the plot is being driven forward by a lie. It's a deception that's right out in the open and that at any moment they could be discovered. And so it's, it's, there's tension and there's suspense. And as we read the Bible, I think we're often not sort of trained to read it for all it's worth. We don't see the drama and the tension right in the text. It's almost like, you know, we're we go to the Bible like we, you know, we're eating our vegetables, and so we read it like this bland sort of story, but the artistry is incredible. It's a story so well told, and it's just dripping with all of this stuff that makes for a great story. There's all kinds of tension, and so if we could get into that mindset, think about, you know, when the kids in Harry Potter drink the polyjuice potion and go into the Ministry of Magic, that tension, whatever story that comes to mind for you. So before we get into the story, though, let's remember some of the backstory. We've seen already in our text that Isaac marries Rebekah. For some time, she's unable to have children, but Isaac prays and God gives them twin boys, Esau and Jacob. While she was pregnant, Rebekah heard this word from God. God says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you and Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
So then we saw that Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob followed close behind, grabbing onto Esau's heel. We were also told that Esau is a, like a beastly man, hairy, red, he's a hunter, he's an outdoorsman, and we're told that Jacob was a quiet man who preferred to be indoors. And as we might expect from that description, Esau was his father's favorite, and Jacob was his mama's favorite. So last week we saw uh, that Esau, this is just an episode in his life, Esau comes in from hunting and he's hungry. And Jacob is sort of this shrewd man. He offers him a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright. The Bible, so Esau trades his birthright for a bowl of stew and the Bible tells us that, that Esau despised his birthright. And so all of that is in the background as we come to Genesis 27 today. Let's get right into it, starting with verse 1. When Esau was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older brother and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Stopping there, a few things should stand out to us right away as kind of strange. First of all, Isaac is this old man, he's nearly blind, and he's talking like he's going to die any day. But as we keep reading, we're going to see that he doesn't die for decades. Jacob's going to go away and be with, be with Laban and come back. And I mean, all of this is going to happen before, before Isaac actually dies. But his impending death is the reason for this quick, sort of hasty blessing. Another thing that should seem strange to us is that he's passing the blessing to Esau and not to Jacob. He is keeping with tradition, passing the blessing to the older son Um, We'll get into the difference between blessings and birthrights in in a little bit, but we can tell, even from the context of this passage itself, that this isn't normal. As we keep reading, we can see that Rebecca is listening in. Let's keep reading, starting at verse 6 and 7. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke this to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I've heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. So we can even see in the context here that this isn't what ought to be done, right? So if you have a wife eavesdropping from the next room and then scheming against your plans, like all is not well in your home, something is amiss and we can tell it even from this story. Here's something that's always sort of troubled me, or, or at least been odd. Why does Isaac, why does Isaac, <laughs> it is spelled wrong in my note, why does Isaac need food? Why does he say, go cook this meal for me? Isn't it interesting? It's like, you get this idea that he's like, this is my last meal, just make something I like. But actually, when we see what's happening in the passing of blessing, it becomes more clear that, that this is an official occasion. It's supposed to be a celebration. So there's an Old, Old Testament scholar named John Walton said this about this passage. He said, it is clearly a celebratory occasion since Isaac asked for the preparation of a special meal. But as such, it is odd that the whole household wasn't asked to be present. 
both as co-celebrants and as witnesses to the legal transaction. It's not hard to imagine, however, that when political issues of favoritism are involved, there's an inclination to be secretive. So we see that the blessing is a passing of the birthright. It is an official transaction, and it is a word from the father of the, of the, um, of the home to the children about their destiny. So it is an official occasion, and it should be a public celebration. But Isaac knows that he's defying the will of God. And maybe he has his own doubts, but he knows he's defying the will of his wife who has heard the word of God. So he's, he's doing this blessing in secret. And as we've already said, Rebecca has her own plan. She knows that Isaac is going against the will of God. So when she overhears Isaac's plan, she sets her own plan into motion. Let's continue with verse 8. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. When Rebekah took the best then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. So we see that Rebekah has a plan ready. So we're not sure. The text doesn't tell us whether she has this plan queued up. She's been premeditating on it for a while or whether it's thrown together in the moment. But either way, there's not much time. She knows that Esau's a good hunter and that he'll be back quickly. And so her plan is to cook some stew with lambs. I love the repetition of just the way he likes it. He won't notice that it's not elk or whatever Esau's hunting. She's sending Jacob in with the stew to deceive Isaac and the plan is that Isaac will bless Jacob and then all will be well. God's will done. So Isaac is nearly blind and Rebekah's plan is to trick all of his remaining senses except for one, which is hearing. She puts the lambskin on his hands and neck to sort of mock Esau's hairiness and she puts Esau's clothes on him to trick Isaac's sense of smell and the stew will trick his sense of taste. Now, as we keep reading, this is where I really want you to sort of lean in, maybe hold your breath. This is where he goes in before his father. And I just imagine, if you can engage your imagination a little bit, he goes in, his heart is pounding. He's thinking, this isn't going to work. He's going to find out and he's going to curse me. I imagine he's holding the bowl of his stew and his hands are shaking. He's trying to calm his breath. He's saying, if I speak, you know, I don't want my voice to quiver and so he's trying as hard as he can to speak clearly and confidently. And he says, Dad. Isaac says, who is it? Jacob replies with a lie. I am, your, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that, my, that your soul may bless me. 
But Isaac isn't buying it. He says, that was fast, kind of too fast. How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Jacob answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. That's not just a lie, that's blasphemy. Lie with the name of God. And Isaac is still suspicious, and he says, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And as, as the audience, we look in and we, we're holding our breath, it's like the moment of truth, right? Is the gig going to work? But after touching him, Isaac is still unsure, and he says, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And then Isaac just finally just says, look, are you really my son Esau? And you can imagine Jacob just sort of laughing nervously, again, heart pounding, of course, of course I am. And finally, Esau eats some of the stew, the kind that he loves so much. And Rebekah's stew finally does the trick. He can't tell the difference between the stew from the field and the ones from the lambs. And so Isaac says, come here that I might kiss you. And as Jacob leans in for a kiss, Isaac smells his clothes. And then he finally is convinced and he blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau, with these words, see, the smell of my son is as the field, is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So it's done. The blessing is passed to Jacob. Then immediately Jacob slips out of the room just as Esau walks in. It's like, it's over. It's done. The con worked. We can exhale. All that's left is for the duped parties to catch up to what's happened. And so Esau walks in. I just imagine him proud and smiling with a bowl of stew in his hands. And he says... Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Just like his day's going great. And Isaac says again, who are you? And then when Esau responds, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau, Isaac begins to tremble. He starts to shake. And this is where a little bit of speculation, I think, helps us sort of just grasp with what's going on here, he realizes what's happened, that Jacob has deceived him, and he starts to tremble. So in, in Hebrews 11, verse 12, we're told that it was by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So we read that in Hebrews, and we read this story where it seems like he was tricked into it. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of faith going on. And I think... Um, this is speculation, but I think that what we see here in this trembling is Isaac realizing that he has been opposed to God, that God has had his will anyway. And we see that he says this, uh, Isaac says this to Esau, your brother has deceived me and has taken your blessing and he will be blessed. Isaac realizes that there's nothing he can do to stop the will of God. And I think that that's what we read about in Hebrews 11. This is, this is the moment where he realizes uh, that he's been against God. He has faith. 
He knows that God's will will stand. He won't resist it. He won't try to change his mind. He stands by what he has said, even though it was on the basis of deception. Now, when he speaks blessing for Esau, when he speaks the blessing to Esau, he agrees with God's word that the older will indeed serve the younger. And Esau's reaction to this, he's devastated, he's destroyed, and he he cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. You can just see him broken. Esau then turns his thoughts to Jacob and and he becomes enraged. And he says, isn't he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. What we see here is Jacob's name means deceiver. Esau is saying he deserves his name. It's almost you can see Esau going through the stages of grief. He starts to bargain and he cries out through bitter tears, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And it's it's a tragic and sad scene where just a couple chapters ago we saw that Esau despised his birthright. It was so cheap to him he traded it for a bowl of stew. He said he was about to die. What good is a birthright for me, to me if I'm going to die? But he wasn't about to die, just like Isaac wasn't about to die at the beginning of this chapter. But he was concerned for his desire in the moment, and it ended tragically, because now we see the consequences flooding in. Esau was devastated to see what that impulsive decision is costing him now. Maybe you can relate. I know many today can Esau is just sitting here with a bowl of stew, a stupid bowl of stew in his hands. The thing that he traded for his birthright, it's like God saying, you want a bowl of stew, here's a bowl of stew, and you can see now what it costs you. And it's garbage. One way or another, that bowl of stew is garbage tomorrow. I can see just tears falling down the faces of both men, Esau realizing how dumb he's been, and he says, is there nothing left for me? And finally, Esau responds with a blessing for Esau. I'm sorry, Isaac responds with a blessing for Esau. He says, behold, I have made him. This isn't the blessing yet, but this is his explanation. Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What more can I do for you, my son? All right, so as we think about the difference between a blessing and a birthright, We don't have anything really like a birthright in our culture necessarily, but I was thinking that it's similar maybe to a power of attorney or maybe an estate executor. Isaac has made Jacob the head of the family. To be the head of the family comes with rights and privileges and wealth, and it also comes with responsibility. So I think in our day, we're so accustomed to thinking of authority in a negative sense that when when he was made Lord over them, that seems like this terrible thing But he's really made him the head of the family. He hasn't given him the power to abuse his family. If Esau submitted to it, it could be a good thing for him. But instead, he's inconsolable. He's crying and he says, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. The Bible tells us that he lifted up his voice and he wept. I hope you can just visualize how pathetic this scene is. I hope you can feel it because it's the grief of a fool who only realizes what he wants and what he needs after it's gone. It's the grief that many will feel on the day of the Lord when they stand before Christ 
And he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then finally, over Esau's wailing, Isaac speaks his blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. And away from the dew of heaven on high, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Quite a different blessing, isn't it? Now we'll see this in a few weeks, that largely these words are fulfilled through the nations of Edom and Israel. We'll see in a few weeks that actually Jacob, when when they meet up again, Jacob bows down to Esau. And and he tries to give him all these gifts, but he rejects those gifts because he's doing all right. But the nation that that comes from Esau is called Edom, and they become a very pathetic nation. When Babylon comes in and conquers Israel, they're just sort of yelling, like, yeah, go get them. Um, Largely, this prophecy is fulfilled uh, through these nations. And then we hear that Rebecca Rebecca overhears that Esau is desiring to murder Israel his brother Jacob. He's so angry that he's just, he's comforting. The Bible says that he comforts himself by thinking about murdering his brother. And so Rebecca sends Isaac away and she tells, um, <laughs> I'm thinking like, you get, I'll, I'll get a tally how many times I use the wrong name. Uh, <laughs> Rebecca sends Jacob away and she tells Isaac that she's sending him to find a wife because Esau's Hittite wives are driving her crazy. She literally wants to die because these women are so crazy. And that's, our, that's the end of the story. I want to draw your attention first to some parallels between this story and others that we've seen in Genesis. So just a few weeks ago, uh, when I preached last, we looked at the story of Isaac and Ishmael, that God chose Isaac and God did not choose Ishmael. We saw then that God's electing choice is completely free. It's unconditioned by anything in people. The only conditions that God allows to decide his choice is his own goodness, his own, free, his own free choice. When we talked about that story, we saw that it was one of a set of stories that established a pattern in the Bible. The first time we see this pattern is with Cain and Abel. God chooses Abel's sacrifice, God rejects Cain's sacrifice, and in that case as well, God chooses the younger, which is a theme. In the case of Cain and Abel, Cain murders his brother, and then he goes off into the east, into exile. In the case of Esau, we also see that he's comforting himself by just planning to murder his brother. Here again, uh, we see in this story that God's choice is not based on anyone's worth, but that God's election is based on what he, his own free choice and his own glory. Rebecca uh, conceives of an answer to God's prayer. Re- I'm sorry, Rebecca conceives as an answer to God's prayer. That's a theme again that the, these birth narratives show that God is at work. It's not just the natural flow of things. It's God's action, and it's all for his glory. When we looked at the story of Ishmael and Isaac, we saw that this is true, that this pattern of God choosing the weaker is true even in the church, that God doesn't choose us, God doesn't save us because we are good, but because he loves us. We're saved by grace, and God, we see all throughout Scripture, loves to choose the unexpected. Now, I want to end by looking at three big questions that come up from this text. This is what I said at the beginning. These are, these are 
big topics in, in the church, uh, in the Bible, in Christianity. These are things that have been discussed again and again throughout the church. And so um, I'm going to answer them all completely for you today. Um, that, that was a joke. These are, these, are, <laughs> these are big deal questions. Some of them are the reasons why people um, decide not to believe in the God of the Bible. And some of them are the reasons why people have left faith in Christ. And so as we come to this today, some of these questions may strike a nerve with you. And my, my dumb joke, I'm not going to answer these in, in a few minutes for all of you. And so if they do strike a nerve from you, I, I would encourage you not to run away from these tough questions, but dig in, move closer, closer to God who can handle your doubts, closer to Scripture through study and meditation, which is our source of hope and where real answers are found, and closer to community where you can wrestle with others through these tough questions. So here they are, three questions. The first one is, how can God, who is love, hate anyone? So what is it meant, what does the Bible mean when it says that God hates Esau? So actually, just to be clear, we don't actually read that in this passage in Genesis, but later the prophet Malachi will write, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And then Paul quotes this passage in Romans 9. We see this starting at verse 10. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For through her sons, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So what do we make of this? First, I think that we have to understand that the human emotion of hate is so often associated with sin. But God can't sin. Amen? So it's likely that many of us need to adjust our understanding of hate when we read that God hated Esau. The idea of hate, of hate in Scripture is often related to a choosing, choosing one thing and rejecting the other. Some of you may be familiar with the Scripture where Jesus tells his disciples that in order to follow him, you must hate your mother and father. That's a tough passage, right? What does that mean? Does it mean that we need to hate, I need to hate my family to follow Jesus? Sorry, guys. On the front row, it's awkward. <laughs> yes, yes, in a way it does. But before we go like slicing our parents' tires or ripping my heads off the stuffed animals, my kids, <laughs> let's make sure that we've understood what the Bible means by hate. So in this case, there's a choice between Jesus and family, and we'd better choose Jesus every time. When we follow Jesus, we will find that he calls us to love our neighbors, love our enemies, and hate our family? So what happens here? What's the logic? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Do we hate our family to follow Jesus only to be pointed back to love them? Yeah, that's right. If, if we understand properly, we turn to Jesus so hard and so ultimately that we are turning away from our families for any source of meaning or purpose. Jesus is all. 
And then we find that we can actually love our families like Jesus. Husbands can love their wives like Christ loved the church and so on. This is what the Bible means by hatred. We see the same thing when Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, God and money. You will either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. So when we love God, we hate money so that we can then use money properly without it having a hold of our hearts. So we see that when Paul quotes from Malachi 1 and he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's talking about election. God chose Jacob. He loved him. He showed him favor and God hated Esau. He did not choose him. He rejected him and he turned away from him. So the biblical idea of hate here can't have anything to do with what we see in our day as this sinful, petty, sort of ego-driven temper tantrums that we throw when something doesn't go the way we want or someone gets on our nerves. It's hard for us to even conceive of this, but God's hatred of Esau is holy and sinless. It must be. We see that when God hated Cain in rejecting his sacrifice in favor of Abel's, God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Just as Esau, we saw a couple chapters ago, hated his birthright by choosing a bowl of stew, God hated Esau by cho- choosing Jacob. <laughs> Solved that one, right? The second big question that this story raises is God's relationship to evil. Does God cause or endorse evil? Now, maybe, maybe it's not clear. If it's not clear, this whole episode is awful. It's full of evil. If you pause the story at any point, and you will find everyone lying, deceiving, distrust all around. Jacob even uses the name of Yahweh in his deception. We've said it, that's blasphemy. No one comes out looking good in this story. In fact, Rebecca sort of mirrors Sarah that she hears this promise from God and she's determined to make it happen through her own action, her own schemes. And the scheme requires her to take advantage of her husband's vulnerability and con him into doing what God has willed. But when we come to the question here, Does God endorse this evil or cause this evil? We don't have to guess. God's will does not involve lies, deception, confusion. Jacob's name means deceiver, but we know that there is a great deceiver, the father of lies, and he's the enemy of God, right? But it is difficult, right? This is a hard story because in this story, all their scheming and their lying and deception does bring about God's will. The blessing passes to Jacob. We will see that there are consequences to sin. There always is, but ultimately, their lies and deception bring about God's will. So what do we say about this? Is it God's will that they performed sin, that they lie? We could ask more broadly, Does God want or cause evil? I don't know. Can we say it all together? No. That's foolish talk. All throughout Scripture, it is not true. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. uh, 1 John 1.5 says, There's no darkness in him at all. 
when God reveals his character to his people, this is throughout the Old Testament, but, but in, um, in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and trans transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now there's so much that we could say here, I mean this is a loaded passage, but what we see is that there is this tension that is somehow unified in the nature of God, that he judges and punishes sin, yet it is in his character to be slow to anger and loving and forgiving and merciful. There is no evil in God. And what we see in this story, though, is what the Bible bears out, that God can and does use evil to bring about his purposes. I like how, um, so the abstract of principles is Southern Seminary's statement of belief, and I like what it says about this. Some of you who know me are probably laughing that I'm quoting from the abstract of principles, but it says, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass, and perpetually unholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. That's hard for us to understand, but God is sovereign over it all, and yet he wills, it is not his will that sin should be at all. In Jeremiah 25, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, his servant. The king of a wicked nation is God's servant, and he's going to use Babylon to punish Israel for their sin, for their idolatry. And in the end, we see that God uses a Roman torture device to exalt Jesus to the throne of his new kingdom. I want to just finish this by saying this, where, the, the nature of evil, where evil comes from and how God relates to it has been a major topic in theology forever. We see it in the Bible, but we see it in major theologians from Augustine to Calvin and more recently in our time, Alvin, Alvin Plantinga, have all wrestled many, many pages over this issue. And I bring this up now, not to answer all the questions, but there are some who have left the church in the past few years. There's been this wave of people leaving the church, and some are saying that this is an issue, that the church is afraid of these big questions. The church never talked about the problem of evil. Don't believe it for a second. It's false. I'm not saying that this is an easy question or that it's been answered and put to bed, but it is not one that has been ignored by the church either. And if any church wants to sweep evil under the rug, just come together and sing Everything is Awesome, Lego, Lego movie, that church is failing its people, and they will be the ones who are on Twitter someday saying in ignorance, the church has no answers for people who suffer evil. It's not true. The problem of evil, though, is a whole class that you can take at seminary, and you can read books and books. And at the end of that class, you don't come out with all the answers. So I'm not going to solve it now in five minutes for you. But if I would love for you to take me to coffee and we can talk, keep talking about it. Lunch? I don't know. 
Reach out to your pastors and wrestle through these things. It's a tough issue. The final question that I want to look at is the question that Paul raises when he cites this issue of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The next thing he says, is there injustice in God? And another way maybe I want to frame this is, could Esau repent? Why couldn't Esau seem to find repentance? We see this in Hebrews 12. This is verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." What are we we to make of this? Should we believe that Esau truly wanted to repent and have fellowship with God, but he was barred from repentance? Some people think that that's what's going on here. Some of you may have heard of the singer-songwriter named Derek Webb. In the 90s, he was uh, in a band called Caveman's Call. And then in the 2000s, he was a solo artist. So listen to these lyrics. This is from a Caveman's Call song. Uh, I think from 2001. It says, Sometimes I fear maybe I'm not chosen. You've hardened my heart like Pharaoh. And that would explain why life is so hard for me. And I'm sad that Esau hated, crying against what's fated, saying, Father, please, is there any left for me? So here in this song, you have a Christian person saying, Maybe I'm like Esau. Maybe I can't really repent because God hasn't made me to be one of his chosen people. And in the past few years, Derek Webb has rejected the Christian faith. I want to share with you some things that he said in an interview. Derek and the interviewer are talking about what it would take for them to believe. Derek Webb says this, I'm literally in the grave next to Lazarus waiting to hear my name. And I'm going to lay in there dead until he shows up. What it would take is a miracle. What does it take for a dead man to come six feet out of the ground? It takes someone to dig him out, open the box, and revive him. And the Bible makes it very clear that there is nothing less spiritual than that going on in salvation. New life, from death to life. And that is what would be required. And I'm open to it. I'm literally in the grave waiting to hear my name. And I won't be able to resist it, and I can't call out for it. I can't coax him over. Either my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, or it's not. And I got to the point where I said, maybe God made me and fashioned me for destruction. At this point, the interviewer chimes in and says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated for the good, will of his own, uh, for the good pleasure of his own will. Derek Webb says, maybe it's all real, and I'm not chosen. Over the past few years, I've followed the Derek Webb saga fairly closely because I liked him as a songwriter. I've seen him maybe three times. And hearing this literally makes makes me feel sick. It's the worst kind of foolishness coming from this hyper-Calvinistic view of God's election. 
And I want to say this just with the biggest exclamation point. There, the Bible has no category. The Bible has no category for people who repent and turn to God but are rejected because God has predestined them to damnation. There isn't one. So a Christian saying, maybe you've hardened my heart like Pharaoh is foolish. Pharaoh wasn't this prisoner destined, predestined to hardness, but he really wanted to repent. God wouldn't let him relent at all. That's not what, we, what happens. This, and we read in the story, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The one reading of the text that is not allowed, that it never would lead you to say that, that Pharaoh really wanted to let God's people go, but God had determined that he wouldn't. And it's the same with Esau. Did Esau repent? We see that there is a kind of repentance, but it's really clear that the kind of repentance we see in Esau is this tragic repentance of someone who's realized that they traded everything that mattered for a stupid bowl of stew. And when he saw how stupid he'd been, he falls on his knees and he realizes his mistake. But it's not a humble repentance before a holy God. And we see that clearly because the next thing he does is he plots to murder his brother. Esau hates Jacob because Jacob received God's favor. People who repent don't hate others who receive God's grace. In fact, those of us who receive God's grace are bound together because we, we, there's a kind of fraternity, a brotherhood, a sisterhood because we know that we don't deserve what we have. It draws us together. And the tragic and maybe ironic truth is that in the end, Derek Webb is just like Esau. He followed his right now desires, his bodily sort of desires, away from faith in the God of the Bible. But we see that he's, he's too puffed up with knowledge to say, I wanted to cheat on my wife and I wanted to drink till I can't see straight and that's why I walked away from God. So he blames God for his rebellion against God. It's God's fault that I can't repent. And we don't have to speculate about this. Let's see what the Bible says. Psalm 51, 17 says, this is David, by the way, this psalm of repentance. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It is not in God's nature to turn away someone who is, who is repenting and who, who is broken and contrite. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So brothers and sisters, Christ the King Church, hear me. We are a church with a big God theology. Amen. We know that we come to faith in Christ through grace and grace alone. We know that we are dead in our sins before the Holy Spirit revives us. In fact, as you listen to those words of Derek Webb, you know like that's a lot of what we believe. But may we not follow Derek Webb's flawed and sinful logic to try to blame God for our rebellion against him. Hear what Charles Spurgeon says about this topic. He's talking about 
this passage, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. He said, you are, quite, you are quite right when you say the reason why God loves a man is because God chooses to do so. There is no reason in the man. But do not give the same answer as to why God hates a man. If God deals with any man severely, it is because that man deserves all he gets. In hell, there will not be a solitary soul that will say to God, Oh, Lord, you have treated me worse than I deserve. But every last soul in hell will be made to feel that he is receiving what he deserves. That his destruction lies at his own door and not at the door of God. It's pretty well said, Spurgeon. So what this means for us, church, is that we who have come here today as people of faith, who are maturing in Christ, who are destined for the kingdom of God, we know that it is all the love of God. It is not because of anything we've done, and we don't deserve it. Amen? Jacob didn't deserve God's love, but he had it because of God's choice and his grace. At the, same, the same is not true for those who remain in their sin, who are punished and judged. It is what is in them that merits punishment. So here's maybe the, the logical formula is that neither Jacob nor Esau deserve God's love. Jacob receives God's love because God is merciful. As we've been working through the books of Genesis, I hope that you've seen the character of God and that you've been encouraged. It's the, the deists and the Epicureans who believe that God is out somewhere, who just wound up the creation and set it loose. That is not the Christian view. The God of the Bible makes promises and he keeps them. He comes near to people in their suffering. He hears the cries of the oppressed and he answers them. I hope you're encouraged today, church, that the God of the Bible, the sovereign Lord, does not give up a drop of his sovereignty to forgive sinners who turn to him and trust him for repentance. This is a tough topic. It's a, it's a mystery. At the end, we are left with faith. We have to have faith and say that this mystery is wonderful. It is for our good. And we say with our brother Paul, who writes this after all of this sort of back and forth in his mind about God's sovereignty and our responsibility ends this sort of was his climactic doxology, this praise where he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Can we say that last line together? To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you and confess that our understanding of authority and our understanding of your justice can be so skewed because we don't have very many examples of what loving authority looks like. We don't have very many examples of what justice looks like when it is pure, when it is un, untainted by sin and pride. Lord, I ask that you would help us all repent and to see this story and see that you are 
the only good person in this story. Everyone deserves your judgment and your punishment, but you show mercy. You chose Jacob, who has 12 sons, and one of them is Judah, from which there will be a king, King Jesus, who will come and defeat all of the enemies that, that, have, that have rebelled against him and your kingdom. In the end, God, we know that by the Spirit, all things are being reconciled to God, that our future hope is so much better than anything we could imagine. God, I know that, that we, we wrestle in this world where there is evil. We can look all around and sometimes feel overwhelmed with sin, with death, with grief and despair. And Lord, so many have walked away from you, blaming you for it. May that not be so with us, Lord. Help us to know that even though we may not be able to work it all out logically, we know that Jesus came near and suffered with us. The God of the Bible does not stay away but comes close. And at least one of our answers to evil is that Jesus suffers it with us. Jesus took the blow of the Roman cross. Thank you, Jesus, for that wonderful truth. I pray that we would learn to trust you, that when we suffer, we would not suffer like those in the world because we have hope. We know that it has a purpose and it is pointing us to your future kingdom. And God, I also pray today for those who don't know you. It is true that we could say there are other things that are more important. We trade eternity for a bowl of stew. God, may that decision just look increasingly foolish to those who are making it. May we see the, just the wonderful nature of what you've called us to, your kingdom. I pray that, that lost people would, would repent today, would turn to you, would literally change their hearts and their minds and place faith in you. By your spirit, draw some to you today. Thank you, Lord, that we know you are working among us, and it is all a gift of your Spirit. I pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.